Hello, welcome to the Benito Juarez Experience. This is Luciano Gonzalez. And Duem Navarro Rivera. And today we are going to be talking about a 538 article by Nate Silver that came out in the aftermath of the loss in Georgia and South Carolina and vaguely in the aftermath of Montana as well. And so we are talking about democratic losses and are we, We're ta- what's our angle? Are we crying or are we just digesting so, what the hell happened and what is going to happen in the future? It's understandable to think that this would leave people crying. And from an absolutist standpoint, people should be concerned about this. But the idea that this means that it's impossible for Democrats to win, especially in a far grander scale rather than these local um, rather than these <clears throat> smaller districts is a little bit lacking in context because what happened in Georgia and in South Carolina and in Montana was that red districts stayed red. It wasn't necessarily that blue districts were magically transformed by the power of Donald Trump's political prowess or the might of people like Greg Gianforte and Karen Handel. That wasn't what happened. And while it's understandable to people who don't have the political knowledge and the political awareness of what's going on that this would look like this, it's very important that we actually understand that these were red areas that performed historically consistently instead of blue areas that just flipped. And do you know what? Now that you mentioned that, it got me thinking of how selective and how strategic the selection of this district was. Because these special elections happened because Ryan Zinke in Montana Mike Mulvaney, Mick Mulvaney in South Carolina, and Tom Price in Georgia moved from the House of Representatives to Donald Trump's cabinet. The fact is that not only these people moved to the cabinet, they moved to the cabinet from very red districts. And so it was an expectation that you know these people move in there and the seats stay with them. By contrast, Barack Obama in 2009 when he was staffing his cabinet, he did two things that maybe in terms of the staffing was a very good idea. If you say, I want the best person for the job, you tap Arizona governor, a Democratic governor in a red state, Janet Napolitano for Holland Security, and what happened? The state uh, basically turned completely Republican, no statewide Democrats in there and they haven't recuperated from that, recovered from that. And the same thing happened in Kansas. Of all places, in red, deep red Kansas, uh, Kathleen Sebelius was, was the governor, was a Democrat, was tapped as Secretary of Health, and she was replaced eventually by Sam Brownback. And, well, a lot of things have happened in Kansas since Sam Brownback uh, became governor. Not many good things. But, yeah, that, that meant that not only Democrats, strategically at least, played in the same way that Republicans did. 
and that meant that instead of selecting some products from Massachusetts or from Connecticut or from California, they ended up getting people from red states and immediately replaced by Republicans. The Republicans were very strategic and almost, almost got burned in these attempts. One of the things that's important about these particular elections is that it would have been it would have been a miracle for at least at least in a few cases it would have been nothing short of a miracle for the democrats to win which means that if you're looking at this from a analytical standpoint the fact that democrats did as well as they did and that they came as close as they did might have things to do with things like greg gianforte assaulting someone which which was an important thing that happened at the very last minute, but that election was fairly close, and it, there were there weren't quite other situations that were like that because that's a fairly unique event. I'm not sure if it's completely unique, if it's completely without president, but if it does have a president, it's an extreme one. So we need to understand that these things happened and these things affected these elections, but they also indicated that things aren't quite as bad as some people without political context might note. If someone thinks that this is a sign that things are going to stay the same, that's probably not true, which was part of the point of the article on 538. Despite the fact that this article had a very negative-sounding title, its subheading, losses in Georgia and South Carolina, does, don't necessarily mean Democrats are going to lose in 2018, is substantially more hopeful and uplifting for Democrats. And it also talks about the fact that this is, <clears throat> it also talks about the fact that the Democrats are doing better than anyone should have expected, which isn't necessarily going to be reflective of what happens in 2018 and dangerous to make that assumption. But it's also dangerous to think the Democrats are going into 2018 with no victories and the odds of us taking back the House are absolute zero. Yes, I think that's very important, trying to, you know, if you look at the trend, basically Democrats have gained ground uh, in those seats, or at least in those races compared to their equivalents in 2016, which was a presidential, but also in the 2014 midterms. One thing that Silver mentions in his piece in uh, 538 about Georgia, uh, I quote here, that turnout was high in Georgia, six, higher than in, 20, in the 2014 midterms. And many, many and Republicans may take away the lesson that they can hold on to red-leaning districts by enacting their agenda and turning out the pay. This was, this was, turnout was higher, but this was a runoff election. People don't tend to vote eventually in runoff elections. Uh, and if, and this is another important aspect of the Georgia seats race, right? In, in, in many southern states, there's the, the, you know, majority rule. So basically, if you don't win 50% of the vote plus one, you go to a runoff, the top two vote getters get to a runoff election. So Assas did fairly well in this open primary, uh, but the Republicans were running for the seat, basically they split the vote between them. 
So the only real chance Ossoff had to win this to some extent was if he could get over 50% in that first round. The second round was going to be a little bit harder to do because at that point he was going to be dealing with a unified Republican Party. And that's what essentially happened here. Another thing that's worth noting in this instance is that midterm elections have a historical precedent of generally resulting in a backlash against the ruling or against the majority party. And that is extremely critical, especially because Donald Trump throughout his presidency and even into leading into the ends of the election where he was nominated, he was constantly talking about how efficient he was. If we make it to the 2018 midterm elections and what some political scientists seem to be suggesting and some articles seem to be suggesting happens, the results are probably going to be devastating for Donald Trump's legislative agenda. Not necessarily for him or for his followers, but for the ideas that he campaigned on, notably his efficiency and also the fact that so far, even with the Senate and the House in Republican control, there have been instances where Mike Pence has had to come down and break a tie. I remember earlier, I think it was with Betsy DeVos, they couldn't get her confirmed without Mike Pence stepping in and breaking the tie with his vote, which is something that I don't believe has ever happened before. You are absolutely right. It has not happened before, but there's always a first time for everything. Uh, thank you, Betsy DeVos. <laughs> but, Truly a miracle. But also, yeah. but also there is, uh, and I, I think there's another aspect of, the midterms that I think it's very important, it's the fact that, you know, it's certainly possible, you know, it has already happened before in terms of, you know, Democrats taking over the House in 2006 after 12 years of Republican control. That was because the leader of that party, who was re-elected, uh, the president, George W. Bush, was, well, I mean, technically was elected for the first time in 2004, although, you know, he was president in 2000, so he was re-elected. I'm not going to dwell on that for a while. So he was highly unpopular with, with the, and one of his uh, bigger issues was the war in, in Iraq. George W. So, Bush had one of the highest levels of approval, if not the highest level of approval, just after September 11. And he became highly unpopular toward the end of his presidency. But he, even when he started his presidency in nebulous terms, he was never, as at that point, as unpopular as Donald Trump is then. And so Donald Trump is dealing with historic levels of unpopularity for a honeymoon period for a president. He is highly inefficient. Uh, he hasn't been able to, I mean, he has done a lot of stuff through executive action, or he thinks he has done a lot of stuff through executive action. He has done awful things, particularly on criminal justice and environmental issues. But legislatively, with the exception of the 
as is still right now debating uh, Trump's don't care bill, uh, health health plan, they haven't been able to get anything real, major legislation for a party that enjoys a, a big majority in the House that has basically got gotten rid of the filibuster to for practical purposes in the Senate and has the president. So and and with uh, with this particular health plan which is unpopular even among Republicans, this is a you know, this boost of confidence may be their downfall. I think that one of the dangers that they're gonna be facing even even with the current health care bill, it's the same thing. It's their various factions that are constantly warring for attention. And that's part of the reason why Mitch McConnell went and basically blockaded Democrats from doing anything with the Senate's version of the AHCA, the American Health Care Act. Yes. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how this, impacts <clears throat> the turnout in 2018. But the article on 538 talks about how the Democrats are going to need to be ambitious. And it's interesting to me because towards the end of the article, in its last six paragraphs, it starts talking about the importance of next November, which is an understandable place for it to go given that it's titled Where Can Democrats Win?, And it's interesting to me that it's basically advocating for the Democrats to be extremely aggressive in how they do everything. And I I agree with that. And there are people in my social media circles who were political volunteers, who were um, activists who worked with political campaigns, who noted that the Democrats needed to be more aggressive. And in the Nate Silver article, it specifically says they can variously attempt anti-Trump anti-Republican, or anti-incumbent messages depending on the district, which is interesting because the Republicans are currently criticizing them for not having a message aside from being anti the new establishment. Yes, there is, there is an aspect of the, you know, I, I spent many years in New England, so sometimes I, I feel that the Democrats are kind of like the pre-2004 Red Sox, that, you know, even when things are when things should be going for them, they're going to find a way to blow it. And hopefully, you know, Donald Trump's going to be their 2004 Yankees. And enough with the baseball references. <laughs> I think one of the things that, that, that could be happening is to what extent Democrats are able to get good candidates. And you know, political scientists have very, you know, some definitions of what is a, is a quality candidate. And one of them may be like having experience coming from lower office. In, in many states, in state legislators, Democrats have a very thin bench because they have been pummeled in those elections and they don't have majorities in many states and most states. Um, but also with some other types of expertise. So far, I, I 
read an article a few months back that talked about Democrats doing a lot of recruitment around small business owners and veterans, basically to undercut the Republicans' points on being pro-business and you know, the, the, the national security uh, party or the patriotic party. But that also means that you're basically trying to find Republican types to run as Democrats to some extent, and, and still that doesn't give you a message, right? What, what's your message? If, if, if you want to, if you just think that the American Health Care Act is an unpopular thing and it's wrong and it's going to cost people's lives, well, you should run against it. And you should make that, you should be telling people not what is wrong with the Republican Party. You should be telling people what are you going to do to fix it. And I think to a large extent, Democrats are very, there's many good ideas in democratic circles. Democrats take policy serious, but they are very bad at selling it. And they're very bad at selling it because they, some people would argue that they're too intellectual and that they can talk down in, in the Fox News kind of soundbite. But I think also to a large extent is that there's a fear of, you know, sounding out of the mainstream when Republicans and conservatives have never had that fear. Right? Right? They will say their stuff that sounds out of the mainstream and they would say it out there, there will be some uproar, but they don't care. And so if, if, if you are not, if you're afraid of expressing your ideas out and trying to move the Overton window and making it more mainstream, then we have a problem. I think that one of the things that you said that was extremely important was talking about the mainstream. And it's I feel like the reason that Republicans don't have the same level of fear, I agree with that assessment, by the way. They don't have, if they have a fear, it's a different kind of fear, and they react to it differently. But I think that one of the things that they have is that they have, for some reason, they're in this oxymoronical state where they value sounding like outsiders while being conservative. That logically doesn't make any sense. If you think like an outsider, you probably don't agree with the status quo, which is a little bit of what conservatism is, although the status quo has gradually been becoming more left and more liberal over time. So now it's getting a little bit easier. But this is the way that it's been virtually my entire life. The way, the way that I can remember almost everything about conservatives is that they've valued outsiders. They valued people who weren't Washington bureaucrats. At the same time, they've wanted everything to remain the status quo, which to me always sounded like a disconnect. Mm, I, so I think there's a semantic issue in there. And I think what many conservatives call, or at least many people call themselves conservative these days, is basically reactionary. They're not conservative in terms either of, you know, a governing philosophy that thinks of incremental 
change or small change. Actually, in that sense, Barack Obama was very conservative. Uh, he believed in very incremental, uh, small changes that, you know, just not shocking the system. But, and there's conservatives like that. Actually, David Frum has been writing a lot about that type of conservatism. I mean, I disagree with him most of everything, but yeah, that's kind of like he's, uh, he's right for the Atlantic way. Mm. Uh, that's kind of like his, his line of thought, right? That, you know, there's just, you know, sudden changes, and especially like, especially on cultural matters, it's probably not a good idea. I disagree with him. But a lot of people who want to be on the out, who claim to be on the outside, are actually conservative. I think they're they're not really conservative. They're reactionary, and so they don't really want. They they're not, you know, status quo warriors uh, to make a play on the social justice warriors, but they basically want to turn back the clock. And that that's certainly an outsider. Uh, it's more consistent with an outsider kind of view. Even if it doesn't make a lot of sense. I, I, think, that that, I think that that makes more sense than my assessment of it. Because the way that it always sounded to me and maybe maybe there's just a communication difference in the way that we were understanding it. But ever since I came to the United States for college, I've paid attention to conservative outlets, partially because when I first arrived in the United States after being after living in Central America, I was fairly politically progressive. So those were like my media outlets. But as I got as I lived in the United States more, my perspectives changed. And I started noticing the strength, like the quirks of this communication. But the way that it always sounded to me was that they wanted people who didn't like Washington but would be trusted to keep things the exact way that they are now. And I feel like that's because I tend to think of things in more absolute terms, which is part of the reason why I found this article uh, from 538 so fascinating. Because it is easy to see, segueing back into the article, it is easy to see how someone could read these four major losses, not major, but these four documents of losses for the Democrats as disheartening if you only look at it in the most literal and most immediate sense. These were four unique elections where Democrats had the possibility to not necessarily change fate, but they had the opportunity to show that they were stronger than the Republicans did. And if you don't look at the actual numbers, it does look like they suffered major blows. But then when you look at the numbers, you're just like, yeah, it sucks that they lost, but they did better than anyone was expecting them to do. Yes. And you know, one thing I, I actually want to bring up, because I've been, I've been saying, I've been very anti-democratic party this whole episode. And it's that some of the blame for the losses, and particularly the uh, John Ossoff loss in Georgia, has been placed on Nancy Pelosi. And in particular, the, the Republicans, Karen Handel and, and, and her campaign and, and the help she got from independent expenditures, and the Republican Party itself 
basically spends a lot of money in linking John Ossoff's views to Nancy Pelosi. There was a very good episode, I think, of On Point with Tom Ashbrook uh, recently discussing uh, this particular aspect of you know, basically talking about San Francisco values, uh, given that Nancy Pelosi represents the part of the city in, in her district in California. And the fact is that, you know, you may not agree with everything that Nancy Pelosi does. I do think she has been very effective as a leader. Like, she was able to to hurt the Democratic House caucus in 2010 to get the Affordable Care Act passed without having to go through conference committee getting them to pass the Senate version, which I think is an amazing feat for any politician to do. So I think she, she at least she has been historically effective in getting things done, even if I don't agree with her in everything. But also the fact that people are calling, in the Democratic Party are calling for her head because, you know, basically she, she was the reason that Ossoff lost, that because they linked her to link him to her, and somehow that made you know a bad impression of the Democratic Party. When in fact the reason those attack ads focused on Nancy Pelosi was because Barack Obama is not president anymore, and Hillary Clinton didn't win the presidency, and they and there's no major Democratic Party figure to link John Ossoff in the way you can link any Republican to Donald Trump at random. And and so if Nancy Pelosi had been replaced by Tim Ryan, Tim Ryan would have been attacked. Uh they could have been they could have used Bernie Sanders and you actually uh mentioned to me earlier today that there was an ad or at least some video linking him to Bernie Sanders. And if not you could use Chuck Schumer. So it's not like it's not like them or Republicans are going to go easier on a candidate because Nancy Pelosi is not there. I do think that it's uh, I do think that it's interesting that people were attacking. I, I find the cannibalization of at least some parts of the Democratic Party interesting, but it's not good for anyone. I, I agree more or less with what you're saying where it's just like, this is a strange action and isn't particularly effective. I also Googled the statement, um, and it seems that it was the House Majority Leader who talked about the Bernie Sanders, Nancy Pelosi philosophy fail, which is ridiculous because they don't have the same philosophies. I don't understand why people... Like... I understand in the simplest way where it's like, oh, they're both thought to be progressive left-leaning leaders, so therefore they must share the same philosophy. No. Yes, and this is not to say that, you know, I, I do still think that there needs to be a change in leadership, and probably for if Democrats retake the House, maybe Nancy Pelosi shouldn't be speaker. I think that you know there needs more figures to come up because for a party that its base is particularly young, 
with the exception of Barack Obama in 2008, its leadership is not very young. And it's not very reflective. Again, with the exception of Barack Obama in 2008, it's not very reflective of the demographics of the party, which is increasingly young people, it's increasingly people of color. Certainly, Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi are women, which is a particularly important block in the Democratic Party, but women of color are a bigger chunk, or at least proportionally compared to their numbers in the population, uh, than white women. Uh, so Kamala Harris, Senator Kamala Harris from California, is probably more reflective, uh, who is African-American, I think half Asian, half African-American, if I'm not wrong, uh, it's more reflective of the demographics of the present and the future of the party than its current leadership. So, so then, do you? Hmm, I'm trying to think of the right way to word this because you touched on it. But if you if you could pick the next leader of the House, who do you think it would be? Or not not of the House. Currently, the House Minority Party, the next House Minority Party Speaker, I think is the title. Uh, the House Minority Leader. Yeah. You know, I don't know because, I, for, for once, I'm not a Hill person. Like, I, I live in the I work on policy. I work on poly, and I have never worked on the Hill. So I'm not very privy of, you know, who has the greatest leadership skills. It may be that the reason I have to you know, I do not doubt her leadership skills. Uh, but I also, to some extent, my current senator, uh, the junior senator from Maryland, Chris Van Hollen, was at some point tapped to be her successor, and he just got tired and moved up to the Senate. Um, so I don't, I don't know if there's necessarily a particular figure that jumps out of my mind, and if they do, they may not particularly young, which undercuts my own point. Uh, so you know, I'm thinking. Uh, people like Luis Gutierrez, which I don't think it's it's a big leadership figure in the party. I mean, he's a very progressive voice to a large extent, but I don't think he has a big following within the party. Uh, so I don't really, I don't really have a name, and that's why I'm saying that a lot of these calls are unfair, uh, and that you know, changing leadership is not as easy as it seems. I think in the, the Senate has a better bench because it has people like Senator Harris uh, from California, Senator Van Hollen from Maryland, who are not young but at least youngish. There's also there's also newcomers in um, there's also newcomers in the Senate. If I remember correctly, uh, California. One of their people, one of their senators, is fairly new. And I think that she's Latina. I'm trying to remember her name, but I can't remember. No, if she's Kamala a state Harris senator. is not Latina. No, I'm trying to. I I think that she's a state senator, and she's not ah, like okay. uh, like okay. not like a national. Yeah, it's ah, Catherine okay. uh, Cortez. She's not. Oh, she's um, from she's Nevada. Yeah. 
I couldn't remember the exact details. I was trying to remember because I remember reading, I actually wrote about her very briefly when she first won the, when she first won her election. That was something, that was something that I used to comfort myself and my friends when we were talking about Trump when he was first elected. So that was the reason why she stuck out in my mind. But it also, thank you for mentioning that, because it also strengthened my point about the need for leadership of women of color in the party, because women of color are too large and have been the backbone of the coalition. And so Kamala Harris and Catherine Cortez are prime examples of what I'm talking about. In Nevada, so there was works. also... In, in the, this is just a random segue, and I'm going to link articles talking about this in um, the actual video description, or in the podcast description. But in Arizona and in Nevada and in California, there were actually uh, Latinas a little bit older than myself who were involved with the campaigns and were big parts in making everything happen that actually resulted in people like Catherine winning their elections. So it's not just that we have representation in the actual seats. It's also that Democrats recognize our importance as, as administration, as supporting staff, as campaign managers, because we are often underrepresented there as well. Any last words? I, some of my last words are that the Democrats need to continue to be brave. We need, we as a party need to continue to be ambitious. We need to continue running bold candidates who have the poise of people like John Orsoff, butchered his last name. But we need people like him who are fighting the fight in places that aren't often considered democratic territory or places that aren't considered locations where Democrats can win. Because one of the main things that we're going to need if we want to take back the House and if we eventually want to retake the Senate is we're going to need to work with brave individuals who believe that they can win elections in places that historically haven't voted for Democrats in a long time, in places where the Republicans have built up networks that support them and feel safe. We need to make the Republicans not feel so confident in their legislative abilities and in their abilities to win elections. We need to be brave. That is a good ending, and I, and I second that thought. Uh, you know, a lot of the victories in recent years by Republicans have been thanks to the fact that they have overly gerrymandered their districts and made them very, very safe, but also Democrats have not even bothered to field candidates. And so even if you have a wave election and you don't have anybody who can ride the wave, it's impossible to win. This has been the Benito Juarez experience with Luciano. And you and Navarro. And remember, if you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to share the podcast with any of your friends, any people that you want to listen to it. And be sure to tell us what you think. Share any resources that you think are relevant to the conversations that we were having. And, of course, be sure to follow us on Facebook and on Twitter.